And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Y'all, can you believe that we only have three episodes left? Well, I guess I did just say that for the first time on here, but yes, we have three episodes left after this episode will be two episodes. Um, glad I can do math um, before our, our season finale. After that, I'll be taking a couple months off to promote another project coming from Better to Speak, which I'm really excited about. And then I'll be back on the mic in 2021, which sounds very far away, but um, I, yeah, I don't have an exact date right now, but I'm thinking late January or February of 2021. Until then, we have three great episodes planned for y'all, featuring three women who are doing really great work in their respective fields, one of them being Rachel Clark, a fellow Howard Bison and founder of Waves of Change HBCU. At the beginning of the year, in the before times when everything was normal, I was planning episodes for the podcast, and I knew from jump that I wanted to talk about environmental justice and climate change, with Rachel and Waves of Change being top of mind for the interview. I'll be honest and say that this is one of the issues that before wasn't really something that I was completely knowledgeable about, especially coming from a predominantly white suburb in Georgia, I didn't really understand the connection between climate change and racism, systemic racism, um, where a lot of these instances of environmental racism take place in urban cities and predominantly black and brown communities. The term environmental racism was coined in 1982 by Benjamin Chavis and is defined as racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from the leadership of the ecology movements. Before the Flint, Michigan water crisis specifically, I honestly didn't understand environmental racism completely, which we get into a little bit more in this week's interview. But after learning about Flint and knowing how they're still dealing with this today, seeing the Dakota Access Pipeline protest to protect the Standing Rock Reservation's water supply and land, and even now watching the forest fires on the West Coast and learning about how prison laborers used to fight those fires, which we know is a population made up of predominantly black and brown folks, All has opened my eyes to the fact that while the impacts of climate change and, quite frankly, capitalism will, of course, have an impact on everyone occupying this planet, black and brown folks will bear the brunt of that impact. We hear things like how we're more likely to not only get but die from conditions like asthma, heart disease, different types of cancers, and how that all makes us now especially vulnerable to the coronavirus. But we rarely hear about the fact that we've historically been more exposed to toxic landfills and air pollution, other types of pollutants. An article from QZ says that people of color in the U.S. are exposed to a 38% higher level of nitrogen dioxide on average than white people. Nitrogen dioxide is pumped out of power plants and exhaust pipes on cars and trucks and is linked to asthma, bronchitis, and a host of other respiratory problems. And when a power plant emits nitrogen dioxide, it likely also emits sulfur dioxide, another respiratory irritant. When we have places like Flint, Michigan, Another place called Cancer Alley in New Orleans, we've seen recently how cities are impacted by natural disasters, and what is most telling about this is the response efforts to these black and brown communities. It's why we see that, according to the Flint Waterbot on Twitter, Flint, Michigan has been without water for 2,349 days without significant change in the situation. 
and thinking about how that was a higher profile situation, we can see how black and brown communities are ignored when blatantly, loudly asking for the resources necessary to try and reverse these conditions, to try and lessen the impact that environmental racism will have on our bodies, from children to elderly folks to disabled folks, people who are more vulnerable even on top of being black. With all that said, because after researching I could really go on, but that would defeat the purpose of the interview, those are the issues that Rachel Clark and her organization Ways of Change HBCU are looking to bring awareness to and solve. The main thing I love about Ways of Change is the specific intention they have to empower HBCU students, their leadership, their involvement in this fight for environmental justice. Be sure to listen through to learn how you can get involved with their organization, their information, in addition to other resources to read up and educate yourself on environmental justice will of course be in the show notes. So my name is Rachel Clark. I'm a junior supply chain management major from Easton, Massachusetts. And of course, I currently attend Howard University. And uh, growing up, I was always really active uh, in the outdoors. So I grew up on the South Shore of Massachusetts. So like small town, very rural, low population. Uh, but I grew up always in nature. So my dad was always taking me hiking. Uh, we were out fishing on the lake a lot, different things like that. So I always felt very connected to the environment. And so as I got older, like I did Girl Scouts and things like that, and I got really more active in environmental service, but I found that when I was at these events, a lot of times I would kind of be the only one that looked like me, like sometimes the only person of color, not even just the only uh, black person there. And so it kind of gave me this subconscious idea. I wasn't really conscious of it until I got to Howard. Um, but this idea that sustainability was like a white thing, which of course is completely untrue. Um, but when I got to Howard, I knew I wanted to continue my sustainability work, but my freshman year, I felt shy because I felt like if I really embrace that part of myself, like people, I already felt very self-conscious because I was from Massachusetts. I was like, oh, what if people at Howard don't think I'm black enough? You know, I wanted to fit in and make friends. Um, and so I was, I didn't really want to do it my freshman year, but the summer after my freshman year, uh, I was actually working out in LA, uh, for an aerospace company. And I don't know if you remember, but Megan the Stallion, she had a beach cleanup. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was really cool. So I got to go to that. And it was my first time seeing like black people like engaging in this stuff, like at least on that scale. And something in me clicked where I realized like, it's not like our culture doesn't want to engage in sustainability, right? I think it's that we haven't had role models in it that we can connect with on a cultural sense. So of course you have some amazing black environmentalists when you look at history, but we don't really see it in rap culture. You don't really see it in fashion culture. So the things that are really integral to what makes the black community um, so amazing, we don't always have a presence of sustainability integrated in that, especially when you look at things like veganism, vegetarianism, like that does not exist, uh, at least in my um, family at home. So it made me realize that when I went to the beach cleanup, it doesn't matter necessarily that whether sustainable or not, it depends on what is the culture, what is the vibes, and can it become a fun and engaging thing? And so it made me want to start Waves of Change, uh, HBCU Incorporated. And so I ended up talking about it with one of my friends, Christian Brown. Um, and originally it started out, it was only going to be a service trip to Haiti. And of course it evolved uh, way beyond that, as you can see where we are now. So currently we have two chapters, uh, one at Howard University, another one recently launched at North Carolina A&T. We're hoping on founding some more at different HBCUs. Um, and really the mission of the organization is about engaging the black community in the sustainability movement. Um, but the way in which we're intentional in doing it 
is we're very conscious that our ultimate mission is rebranding what sustainability means for the black community. And so we want to focus on the culture. And when we're doing like our different service events, we're playing rap music, we're playing things uh, that our culture vibes with, you know, when we're encouraging people recently, we did a thread on uh, black sustainable businesses. And we focused on choosing businesses that had street style and things that resonated with our culture again, or things that are were made in like Africa and stuff like that. And so we're very intentional um, to integrate the culture with the sustainability movement and focusing on that rebrand at its core. That's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you mentioned um, the intentionality bit, because I think one of the main things that I loved about Waves of Change when I found out about it is like, it really kind of shattered my idea of like what community service with environmentalism could look like at Howard. Like I think of like day of services where, you know, we would just do a, a street cleanup on 4th Street or something like that. And like you guys did like beach cleanup, of course. And then I saw like the aquatic garden clean up yeah. as well like can you talk about um just like the the intentionality again with with challenging those perceptions of like what opportunities are even available for students in dc exactly and you brought up uh my favorite event that we did uh actually was our aquatic garden cleanup because that was also very intentional so when i found out about that opportunity to volunteer um i kind of thought to myself you know who would be the least likely to want to get waist deep in water. And let me target them. So we targeted uh, models of the Mecca, which is our model. <laughs> and the reason we did that was because I wanted to make a statement. Uh, we also worked with uh, Men of George Washington Carver in that event as well. So they were there too. But the reason I wanted models of the Mecca to get in there is because I knew that they had the platform to like break that stereotype. So we took literally the most glamorous people, right? They're the most beautiful, always dressed to the T, and I stuck them in the ugliest pair of overalls, <laughs> like of all time, and we were waist deep in mud, like just shoveling and cleaning it, but again, the reason we're doing this is too, like a huge part of what we do, every time we do a service event, I'm always taking pictures. Um, we had a photographer on our team last year, obviously this year we're not in person, so there's not as much of a need, but the reason I do that too is the images that we share is all a part of changing that stereotype. That's why we do like video recaps of our events and things like that. But for this one, I definitely wanted to make sure because I think when people see that, one, it's shocking to see Black people doing this, right? Like half of us don't even like to swim. We don't even like the water, like if we're going to be honest. Um, but it was a, also important that I found models to be able to do this because it just, again, is showing like breaking that stereotype, breaking that mold. Um, as well. And then also we had our, uh, our biggest event to date was our beach cleanup with Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated Beta Chapter. Uh, we had actually over 180 students come out to that. So it was a massive, massive event for us. And that was, again, uh, very important because that was our first ever event. And I was very intentional, again, wanting to be with a, a Divine Nine fraternity because one, I think it's very important that we engage Black men in this movement as well. There's a huge disparity, like we're already barely represented, but it is more Black women than Black men. And so I wanted to be intentional with that as well, but especially with Alpha Alpha, it's the first Black Divine Nine uh, male fraternity to be founded in 1906. And so for them being the first, I thought it would be very impactful to kind of set the tone going forward for what I wanted our brand to be, what I wanted us to represent. And so that's why, again, that was very, very intentional. And of course the turnout was fantastic. So it was a really, really good kickoff. But in every event we're doing, regardless of which whether it's with models or you know men of an esteemed fraternity we always try to partner with different organizations because we want to bring them into something that they might not have signed up on their own but we're able to introduce something new to them and hopefully they keep returning what has been the the reception from Howard students you know you talk about the intentionality like what has been you know when people are at these events when people are you know engaging with um, y'all's organization like what has the reception been like 
I will say it was just so shocking to me just how welcoming everyone is. Like, I was really surprised because, like I had said, my freshman year, I was nervous. I was in the closet, the environmental closet. You know, I was not trying to be that person. I didn't, And I think that's really the mindset is that if you're that, it's like that person uh, mentality. And But after founding it, and I think our marketing strategy as well really, really changed. So we had a huge positive outcome. Um, and I know, Howard, we've had environmental organizations in the past. Um, I think what makes us a little different is we're actually not a Howard club. And so we have that off-campus presence that allows us to be more flexible. So we don't have to wait for SLA, um, things like that. And also, I wanted to take out the membership piece. So like for us, we don't have members. Anybody can show up. And be, the reason I want to do this is because I didn't want it to be like people being roped into a commitment because sometimes I think that scares people away if they're like, well, I have to go to this many meetings, things like that. Um, so I think our marketing approach helped with our reception because this was something that's just, at least from my perspective, like I want it to be something that you and your friends can do on a weekend. Just like, oh, what do we want to do Saturday? Well, ways to change APC or something. Let's go turn up. Let's go have fun and do that. And so I think that's why it was able to be so well received. We weren't really stepping on any toes. because We weren't in new orgs. We weren't competing with anybody. Um, we took a strategic partnership approach. And so that able well, that was able to get us a broader market because, you know, if you partner with Alpha by Alpha, well, that gives you a little bit more credibility than if we were just posting something on our own, same with like Malls and Mecca, MOG, things like that. Um, and I think too, just that concentration on the culture really separated us and made us a lot more palatable for HBCU students because now it's not like you have to do something, it's a little bit less out of their comfort zone because this is something familiar, it's something fun. Um, and it's something that speaks to HBCU culture. Everything that we're doing is very intentional and concentrated on uplifting that culture, not challenging it. And I think that's something that in the past, um, like I said, there have been tons of different great organizations on campus. I don't personally see many of them that have taken off the way my organization has, but I think it's because of how intentional we are, where it's not an, uh, it's not an or, it's an and, right? You don't have to choose between black culture and sustainable culture we're making a new culture that integrates both of those, something that hasn't really been done before. And so I think that's why it was received so well. And I love that you mentioned um, the fact that, you know, your decision to have this off-campus presence. And so can you talk about, because I know it started off as like an only Howard thing. And now, of course, you are incorporated nonprofit working, you know, to establish chapters at other schools. So can you talk about like, what has that process been like? How did the, the partnership with NCAT come about? How are you looking to expand that? We started out, I mean, we've never been a Howard uh, official organization. I kind of was just doing this. Uh, me and my friend Christian, we just did this on our own uh, to the side. And um, the biggest reason we didn't uh, pursue incorporated status right away was I wasn't sure what the demand was going to be. I didn't really want to make a financial investment until I knew that this was something that I would be able to do long term. And this is something I personally want to do post-grad, continuing on. Um, and so that's why we had kind of waited a year to see what would happen. And then, you know, our year anniversary was back in July. So it was a good time to file. Uh, we went through Inc. file. We did all of our paperwork, um, filed everything, got it approved. So now we are incorporated. Um, but yeah, I mean, the goal was never to just keep it at Howard. It was just, it was a good place to start because that's where I went to school. That's where my leadership came to school. But we decided to choose NCAT as our first non-Howard chapter or non-DC area chapter just because of how amazing their agricultural program is. So they have a really good environmental program. Uh, Greensboro is a beautiful area. My mom actually lives not too far from there. So I knew that it would be easy for me. Like I'm actually traveling next week. Uh, we have our first service event with them. So I'll be in North Carolina next week. So it's, it's pretty convenient for me as far as how it's located. 
I know the area and I also knew some people in the environmental program there. So that's how I was able to kind of recruit for our leadership team, um, things like that. So it was kind of a natural next step. As far as the future, like the overarching goals for Ways to Change HBCU and really the reason why we decided to make the switch from just Ways to Change to HBCU is because we want to have a chapter on every campus. Like I want this to be something that when you think HBCU, you think instead of like, because I feel like the brand right now, if you think HBCU, the last thing you're probably thinking is environmental sustainability. Like it just, it doesn't come to mind. Um, but I want to change that. I want it to be a thing where like, yeah, HBCU, like we're some of the best. Like imagine if every HBCU ran on solar power, how much money that would save our institutions, but also how that would brand our community, what that would say to our community, things like that. And so the ultimate goal is having a chapter at every school doing service work at every school and making sure that we're focused on the rebrand. So yeah, that's kind of like the future. How are y'all's programming? Like how is that going to shift? Of course, like given that COVID is still a thing, um, you can't really do um, like as many community service events. Like what, um, what is that looking like going to the semester? So our NCAT event, we will be doing um, in-person events, but it's very limited RSVP basis. In the past, anybody, RSVP was encouraged, it wasn't required. Um, now it's strict limiting capacity. Um, even our event coming up, it's only 20 people and it's 10 people for per location because we're doing a street cleanup. Um, so it is very strict with that. So we're not gonna be as open. Uh, as far as with the Howard chapter and um, just like the overarching brand, we're going to be utilizing Instagram, I think, a lot more. So some things you can see from us are Instagram live events. Um, we'd like to partner with different organizations like Campin. There's a great vegan organization called Gang. I think that's super cool. So we're hoping to do a cooking show for you guys on Instagram in the future. Um, things like that, really prioritizing um, our social media and then also trying to raise some funds, doing some fundraisers. We'd love to drop a scholarship next year. So we might be doing fundraisers throughout this year. Um, but it is a challenge. I think for any organization, not just Ways of Change, it's hard adapting when you're so reliant on being in person. But I think the best way to think about it is it's an opportunity. And even this year for our staff, like we have our CTO, our chief technology officer, he lives in California. I'm in Massachusetts. Our VP is in Virginia. And so while it is difficult, because we're so far apart, technology allows us to work with people from all over the world now because we're using things like Zoom or Google Meet. So it, it seems like a downside, but it's actually an opportunity to collaborate on a larger scale um, because obviously the internet knows no bounds. So I think we're just trying to stay positive and uh, do the best we can. One thing, of course, you know, speaking on environmental justice, did you matter a little bit? I noticed sometimes in the, in the conversations about climate change, like people will be more sympathetic to like messaging about like, you know, the ice caps are melting or um, save the coral reefs, things like that. I think you mentioned this in a previous interview that you did, like, but the idea of like, you know, Flint, Michigan's water crisis is not really in the news cycle or, you know, as we speak, like California's using prison labor to fight their forest fires. So like, how, like from what you've seen in your work, like how do people like approach that difference? Or like what, um, what work are you in ways of change doing to address that? Absolutely. And I think the best way to kind of talk about it is that it's not talked about. And right. that's the biggest problem. And it's something I've criticized uh, before, in particular, actually, in Australia, when the koalas were, um, people were very sympathetic to like the koalas in Australia from the fires from that. And not saying I have nothing against koalas. Sure, it's a great animal, you know. But uh, at the same time, you have so many challenges that are facing the Black community with sustainability. And the fact that the world will stop for an animal but won't stop for actual people that are loud and that are talking about needing help like in Flint or if even if you look back to like Hurricane Katrina for example or even the current hurricanes right now 
like you said, the prison labor, like it doesn't end. I think the best question too that um, I usually get, because we also speak in different schools and stuff. And the first thing we have to do whenever we go into a school that's majority minority or in an urban community is we actually have to start by explaining that, hey, sustainability actually does affect you. you like you don't have to live in a suburb or on a farm where you think that like, the, I think the mindset is that it only affects people um, if you're close to nature and we forget that we are a part of nature and we're actually citizens of this earth just as much as animals are. And so the biggest challenge that we first have when we're speaking to anybody is actually convincing them that, hey, sustainability is a black issue. Environmental decline is a black issue. And I think the best question I ask is usually when we go into classroom, the, one of the first questions I'll ask is, does anyone here have a family member or know somebody that has asthma? And when we go into majority black school, it's just about every hand that's up, my hand is up, you know? And that's a huge problem because if you look at pollution rates in cities that like Detroit, cities like Chicago, places where we're highly populated, some of the highest pollutions level, black children are most more likely to die from asthma. We're also more likely to have asthma. If you look at our diets, heart disease in the black community, nobody thinks that that's a sustainability issue. But when the cost of produce rises because of droughts in the Midwest due to environmental changes, and now somebody in the Bronx or something can't afford to get healthy organic vegetables because that cost has been raised. That makes that a black issue because now we're having health problems as a result. And so it's extremely important to talk about. It's something that uh, we try to talk about and I'll admit we haven't even done the best job of it. Like I think we need to take it a step further, especially now that we're forced to use an online platform. It's something that you'll be seeing a lot more, especially in regards to like Black Lives Matter and stuff. It needs to be talked about more we're not even doing enough and that's supposed to be our goal. So it just shows how big of a problem it is that these conversations aren't being had, um, but they need to. And what have you seen or like learned about the impact of environmental racism in DC even? Yeah, even in DC, it's a huge thing. I think one of the biggest problems is the food deserts are definitely terrible. If we wanna talk about pollution and trash disposal, um, it's just, it's a huge problem just overall. And I think another issue too is I think that there can be a lot of work done within the school system to make sure that kids are getting outside. So like a lot of people don't even know, we have the Kingman and Heritage Islands right in DC. So there are some green spaces, but the disparity and like the lack of like, if you're in Southeast versus like a different area, um, just having access to things like that become low. And I think a huge problem, something that actually is, is working on being solved, but it's not there yet is uh, urban community gardening. So I was able to work with a team. I was actually, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name, but I was uh, working with the team earlier on in this year and they were working on creating an urban uh, uh, community garden in Southeast. So things like that, but we need more of it. It's, it's not enough. And I think DC, that's something that hopefully if we're back on campus in the spring, uh, we can actually get on the ground and start working on it because it's definitely a necessity. And then for my last few questions, usually I ask um, my guests, like, what are, you know, tangible next steps that people can take from the episode? Um, but I think when it comes to, like, climate change, there's always this overemphasis sometimes on individual action and not necessarily, like, enough um, call to action to, like, like, advocate against, like, corporations who may be contributing to pollution or things like that. So um, what, like, movements, of course, do you involved with ways of change? But, like, what other um, movements do you know of that people can get involved with to kind of advocate for those bigger picture issues? Absolutely. I mean, I think even on, a, and that's a great point too, because I'm actually in the school of business. So I worked for a tech company uh, this summer and the team that I worked on, we worked on circular economy. So actually making this company more sustainable. Um, but a huge problem is that, uh, I don't know how to say this correctly, like 
I think it's a lot of talk, not a lot of action, but the reason things are like this is because there's also not a lot of consequence if people don't take action. And so I think something that everyone can do and I think is extremely important is actually physically reaching out to companies, especially local companies um, and big businesses as well and showing the demand because I don't think there are enough angry letters. Like I think that's something that needs to be talked about because we set the demand and also the perfect time to talk about this now is uh, voting. People don't realize how much voting plays into the part of corporations. Voting in a lot of ways um, is actually like, obviously we have the census and things like that, but companies do pay attention to that. If a hot topic issue uh, at the presidential debate is sustainability, if we make sure that even every two years, like we're voting, not even just for president, but also for those lower level uh, people, that's who decides kind of what's really going to be happening. So like, I think becoming, making sure that we're active in our voting, making sure that um, we let companies know by writing letters, having that demand, but ultimately, like, those are steps that I think people can take on a bigger scale. I mean, obviously, I encourage the little stuff, you know, be green in your own home, try, you don't have to, like, go full vegan, but let's do vegan Tuesdays, vegetarian Wednesdays, things like that, reducing meat consumption, you don't necessarily have to eliminate it, of course, are important, but on the bigger scale, I don't think people realize how much their votes have um, to do with this, as well, as well as the voice of just, like, making sure these companies know and even with your own career paths like I think people think you have to be like a environmental science degree to do something like I'm a supply chain major um, and I chose supply chain because I want to make an environmental impact because that's the one facet of business that has the most opportunity for change because I deal with transportation I deal with logistics packaging um, which are huge things so I think that's something as well depending on what your major is I think everyone has an opportunity to make change if you're a medical major you know, thinking about how can we make our hospitals more sustainable? What things can we do there? Can we have more green spaces? Um, no matter what you're doing, there's, if you're a teacher, like tons of opportunities there. So no matter where you are, um, know that you have a platform, know that you have an opportunity to make change, just about being creative and finding a way to utilize it. And finally, how can Howard students and other HBCU students get involved with uh, Waves of Change? Definitely. So follow us on Instagram at Waves of Change HBCU. Um, feel free to shoot us a message. If you're not at Howard or NCAT, we are looking to expand to new chapters. So if that's something that you're interested in, all you got to do is hit us up and we can do a quick little interview, see if that's a good fit for your school um, and we can make that happen. So I think launching a chapter is a huge first step. Um, keeping up to date with us on social media when we post our different, whether they're in person at NCAT or our virtual uh, community service and fundraisers, engaging with those, staying up to date. Um, make sure those post notifications are on. And uh, if you are an NCAS student, leadership applications will be dropping pretty soon as well. Um, so keep your eyes out for those. That's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website, bettertospeak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.